yeah, I do think they're going to be massively sought after. But again, at the same time, I think personally, the evolution of the analyst is going to be um, what is their their core um, strength. So, are they a data analyst? Uh, are they a video analyst? Um, are they a, a telestration analyst? So I think it will become like bespoke analysts for for each each different metric. So uh, that's where I see it going. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Football Life. I'm your host Josh Schneiderweiler, and on this show, I speak with players, coaches, scouts, agents, and more to give you behind-the-scenes look at football. Today, I'm joined by analyst Joe Carnal. Carnal has been an analyst for more than a decade and has worked for a number of big clubs in England, such as Birmingham City, Sheffield United, Nottingham Forest, and Derby. In this episode, we track the evolution and the role of tactical analyst or video analyst or analyst, however you want to say it. Uh, We get into what the role really entails and dive into some of the tactical trends that are visible in the game today. I've really been looking forward to having an analyst on the podcast as their role is often overlooked and yet they have an increasing influence on the sport and within their own clubs. If you want to reach out to Joe, uh, his Twitter handle is at CarnalJoe, and it's also in the description of this podcast episode. Also, if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes as it really helps the show to get noticed. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with analyst Joe Carnal. All right, I'm in Birmingham uh, with Joe Carnal. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. It's the second biggest city in, in the country, so welcome. Yeah, so, so they say. I mean, we got a gorgeous view right now. No, honestly. it's brilliant, it's um, brilliant. I've never seen Birmingham from this high. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, there's so many places we could start, um, but I guess the best place is, you know, at least for me, because I'm always curious about this, um, if you could paint a mental image for our audience of on a game day, where do you sit, um, you know, who are you with, mm-hmm. and kind of just build a mental image, I guess, for the people listening. Yeah, so it's probably best to start right at the the beginning of the day. So um, obviously it all depends on like home or away fixtures, so we'll, we'll go for a home fixture. Um, so myself, the coaches, and the manager will arrive uh, really early to make sure that all the game prep's ready to go. Um, but really by, by the time match days come around, everything's done. You know, if you if you're having to do loads on a match day, it's because you haven't prepared properly. So, um, so really, it's just making sure that that the players know everything that they're doing, and and um, and and going through just some little bits and bobs, some final pieces, maybe going through like set plays, and uh, but it all really starts when the when the team sheets come in. Um, so obviously, we we would have done a lot of research into what we think the opposition are going to be in terms of their shape and their personnel. Um, so really until that comes in it, it's it's quite placid um, and then after that it's just chaos um, so you'd like to think that most of the time we, we, we've got our research right so we're there or thereabouts with our preparation and, and every now and again somebody will chuck a, a curveball in and change a shape last minute or, or chuck a, a young player in that we might not have looked at so much um, but yeah so soon as the team sheets come in we'll we'll talk with the with the coaches and the manager um, then we'll present to the players how we think the opposition are going to play um, go through what we think their tactics will be uh, judging on what the team is if it's if that's changed um, 
and then really it comes down to players will go out for a warm-up, um, we'll get set up, uh, make sure everything's right, everything's working okay. Um, and that's going to change really for the for the future because analysts have always been up in the heavens at the stadiums or locked away in a cupboard somewhere getting a feed. Um, and obviously in the championship, we film everything wide angle. Um, so we're normally up on the TV gantry um, and then we'll be running down at half time or um, again, depending if you're home, home or away. We were quite lucky at Derby that we had a, an analysis suite right in the tunnel. Um, and that was good because the coaches could come in and have a look at things live and we could feed, be feeding back really quickly. Um, but yeah, it's quite intense. Obviously, when the game kicks off, we're all connected to the bench um, with, uh, with comms. So, uh, you said it was going to potentially change in the future. H- how so? Yeah, so um, obviously the laws change in terms of that you're able to have um, uh, feeds of the game on the bench. Yeah. Um, and myself and, and the manager that I work with are very, very big on the data as well. And we can get live data from Opta on the bench. Um, and from a sports science point of view, they can be getting live um, physical data as well. So so literally um, on the bench, you can end up having an analyst with a live feed uh, streaming the data through as well for Opta. Um, and you could have um, the sports scientist on the bench with a, with a laptop as well, feeding back all the, the physical data live. So um, I do think the whole uh, the whole picture of who's on the bench, who's doing what is going to change because being able to feed back and, and show managers and coaches live um, what we're seeing as well from a, a wide angle point of view is, is, is going to really change things. Um, and a lot of teams are doing it already. So um, Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this is, not, this is happening in American sports already okay. as we, you know, in the NFL, I believe, yeah. Um, yeah. they're doing it. Um, so yeah, it's totally not new. Yeah, um, we've always been restricted for some reason. Um, I don't know whether it's a, whether it's a refereeing thing or, or whatnot. Obviously, because it can be used as a way to um, contest a, a contentious decision. But um, I think if it's used properly and ta- purely for, for tactical reasons, then I see massive benefit in it. You know, when you're watching a game, obviously you're watching the game in a different way than a fan would. Um, but what what are you looking for? Um, you know, I mean, because fans, the first thing they think of, all right, uh, is our team in a four four two? Is mm-hmm. it you know what's the formation? Yep. But like we all know that like it goes way deeper than that. So yeah, yeah. when you watch a game, uh, you know, what are the smaller things that you're maybe uh, you know looking th- out for? I think obviously because we're in a much different position to to what the fans are seeing because of how much preparation we've done before games uh, on the opposition and on ourselves. Um, so you're always looking at those tactical elements that you've spoke about prior to the game um, in possession and out of possession um, so yeah so they're really the things that, that we're looking for and all the things that we would feed back to the players at half time are things that we spoke about before the game um, because I think you can become quite emotive during the game that your attention gets taken by maybe conceding a, a goal or a chance um, but purely from a, a like a really random point of view. Whereas we try and focus on what we've asked the players to do in and out of possession and feeding back that information because it's relevant to how we've approached the game tactically. Um, so yeah, so the main things that we'd we'd look at are uh, how they're achieving those tasks, whether in a positive or a negative way. Um, and we'll always try and leave it on a positive uh, and we'll always try and show them an example if we can. Uh, rather than it just being a conversation because again the power of video is is huge 
Um, and the players themselves now will come in at half-time and they'll want to see things or they'll want to discuss uh, what they're seeing on the pitch because obviously they're playing the game, so that's that's absolutely massive. So we'll always uh, give the players a chance to, to feed back to us as well. You know, so But tactically, we're just looking at um, what what our shapes like? So they're looking position. at. Are they like at halftime? I mean, is, are they all looking at on a giant screen? Or you said you know players want individual feedback. Are you showing them on an iPad or yeah, you so, know like on a tablet? So we'll thing, always or? try and show them on a on a on the screen. So so we travel with a big screen as well to take it to uh, to away dressing rooms. And to be fair, quite a lot of teams now in the championship will provide a a screen in the opposition dressing room, which is which is great. But uh, yeah, so we'll always try and feedback on that. If not, it's uh, if it's like individual feedback, we'll take somebody to one side and we'll provide them with, with that. And um, you know the way we were trying to do it uh, in the past are by having the unit coaches. So the striker coach would, would take the strikers away if he felt they needed something. And and obviously having multiple analysts in the dressing room helps as well because obviously at half time with the you've really got like a five minute window because by the time all the players come in. Um, the managers had his say we've presented back by the time I've spoke to the managers and the coaches about what our feedback's going to be at half time as well so um, yeah I mean it's only 15 minutes yeah, it's 15 it's minutes like- yeah and every, all the players have got their own little things that they want to get done so some of them might want to get changed into a new kit or whatever or, yeah. um, and again it's, it's, it's trying to use that time as effectively as possible and making sure that again it's left on a positive note so when they're going out there for the, for, uh, for the second half um they're going out in a confident mindset. So, you, you mentioned players will, you know, ask you, um, you know, can you show me this or mm-hmm. whatnot? How common is that? Um, that like a, oh, you it's know, massively common. Yeah, it's massively really? common. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't. When you say massively common, are we talking like just to use like a percentage, like fifty percent? You know, seventy uh, percent. Well, again, it'll be hundred percent. You'll end up uh, showing a player individually something at half time. No, hundred percent of players will. Oh no, no, no. So. No, we we always we always um, so that's a completely different like like topic that, that you could talk about in terms of like the feedback to the players and and um, how much information they take in and so we always laughed because when we when we was at Derby um, the defenders would want to know absolutely everything about their own game and about the opposition so the strikers they're going to come up against they would literally we go into so much detail with them. Um, and the centre midfielders would do the same, you know. Uh, you could almost have like a unit of like your centre backs and your centre mids and your full backs and your and your, your wide players. Um, whereas the strikers literally wouldn't want to know anything because they're so instinctive. Um, and one of the players said to us, you know, it does nothing for my confidence that if I sit down before a game and you show me that I'm coming up against two absolute giants that are just going to kick me for 90 minutes. He said, you know, like my mindset going into that game is, isn't a confident one. Whereas if I go in and I have to learn for myself, I'll find a, a solution for myself in the game. Um, so, yeah, so like we'd find that like the, the captain, um, the centre-backs, uh, the full-backs, um, would want to see stuff themselves and it would be us that would have to pull the strikers and maybe say look you know this is where the space is you might not be seeing it but on the wide angle you know have a look at this or or um, you know it's a high line show them examples of this so but yeah so we'd actively have to go and try and get the attacking players to to look at stuff whereas the more defensive minded or or possession based players would would want to see stuff themselves and come looking for us. That's really interesting. I mean, because I um, when I interviewed Paul McShane, he was telling me that when he was at Hull, like um, you know, 
like over half of the players, you know, actively watched tape like voluntarily and wanted tape voluntarily. But when he was at Reading, it was like, uh, you know, very low. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I was just wondering like kind of the discrepancy. Cause I mean, you've worked at a couple of clubs, you yeah, know, I think, so I think it's, again, it, it comes down to, to how analysis has been used at, at that club. Um, you know, so when I, when I first started, um, there was a lot of um, concern from the probably from the more senior players that it was going to be used as a as a whipping tool, um, as a as a way of discrediting what they're doing or or a negative tool. Um, and every manager that I work with has used it in a different way. Uh, but I'm a massive advocate of um, even when you're you're having to present uh, something that that's negative, you have to turn it into a positive. Um, and we'd prefer to spend loads of time finding good examples of what our players done. So when we show them a negative example, we can say to them, look, you're more than capable of doing it because here are the examples. So you're always trying to uh, to leave it at that. And I think that's when analysis been, has been used in its in its best capacity. Um, but yeah, and, and again, it, it depends how, you, how you're feeding back to players and how you're presenting to players. Um, so we've uh, we obviously had a really tight budget at Birmingham. Um, so we do the majority of stuff in the meeting room um, and then as we could in terms of the budget we we started putting screens up around the training ground as a way of feeding back to the players uh, then we integrated Google Drive so they could get it all on their mobile devices and what we found was even in meetings you'd have 20 players in a meeting room and you'd be showing them say 10 minutes of video but whether or not they pay attention to what you're showing them is completely down to the individual uh, and again, it comes down to whether the player wants to see it in terms of whether he can be bothered or whether he wants to see it in terms of it might affect his confidence. Um, so literally, you can sit them down in front of a, of a screen and you can show them a meeting. But again, whether they take in the information is completely their responsibility. So what we try to do is we try to provide them with different platforms to, um, to watch content um, uh, and receive uh, information so that they could do it in their own time. Because we found that if you wasn't forcing them to do things or, or to what or to look at stuff, um, they'd end up doing it anyway in a more comfortable environment. So when we started doing it, the the physios would say to us like they're all on their mobile phones in the in the physio room. We're, we're going to have to find them. We're going to have to find them. So we said no. Like if they're looking at the content that we're putting on, like it's great. It's exactly <laughs> exactly what we want. So you'd walk past the masseur's room and the lads would be watching stuff on their on their phones, you know, and they're not on like YouTube or like Twitter or whatever. Like they are actually looking at their game. And what we found was more and more would say, oh, can you can you put this on Google Drive for me so I can watch it when I get home? Or, or can you share this with me? Because I don't know when I'm getting a rub or when I'm getting treatment or whatever. So we started doing it in the gym on a Monday morning, all the post-match stuff. We'd put on iPads for them to watch while they're doing a spin session or whatever. So, and we found a massive, massive benefit of it. And when we went to Derby, we inherited an unbelievable infrastructure at the training ground. Uh, and it was set up for exactly what we wanted. We developed our own app, um, which the players liked. Uh, it was really user-friendly. Uh, and again, that's massive. It has to be really simple and, and easy to use. Um, so, and again, I think we found an increased buy-in just from not forcing them to do things and almost giving them the responsibility to, to do it themselves. Uh, but obviously, we would have the important meetings in terms of the pre-match, post-match. We would get them all into the meeting room. And even uh, if we were pulling an individual, instead of taking them into the meeting room, we'd try and take them into the coach's room where we'd have a big screen and 
just different environments, you know, a lot more relaxed environments again, because when it becomes um, an intimidating place or when, when the meeting room's been used as a place where negative feedback is, has been used, whenever you say there's a meeting and they're in the meeting room, you can just see the energy just sap out of people. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I used to be a teacher and it's like if you assign something as homework or like if you say you have to read that book, like they're like, oh, I don't want to read that book. But like if you just like leave the book on a table, mm -hmm. just like leave it there, like uh, someone's going to go read it. Yeah, like yeah. and, you know, be like, oh, you should do that, too. Yeah. Um, we started doing it with, with the pre-match meeting. So even when they'd already watched it in, in terms of a group meeting, we'd put it on iPads and. We'd leave it on the on the the dining tables in the canteen, or if we was in a hotel, we'd put it on the dining tables when we're having a dinner and breakfast. And uh, you'd see people just play it, and and they'd be watching it. So I think that's that's quite a big thing now. And again, like you see, massive even from the elite clubs, they're 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 developing apps and um, and ways to to feedback to players. It isn't just sitting them in front of a of a projector screen and and having long long meetings. Because again, that's a that's a a big part of my personal philosophy and that of the manager that I work with is if you if you spend so long in a meeting room the whole impact of what you're trying to show them is gone yeah. so it has to be really good examples of what you're trying to present to them um, obviously using Telestration to do that so we used Coach Paint uh, through Kyron Hago um, and that's been that's really taken uh, a way of presenting the video to the players to like another level um, so um so, so that's been good. And again, if it's visually stimulating for the players, I think, again, you, you get their attention a lot quicker. And just wait till VR comes and oh, like VR, flips that. Like, yeah, you know, 100%. On its well, head. I've, yeah. I've, I've been working with somebody recently that's that's been doing unbelievable stuff with, with telestration and going into the players' point of view and whatnot. And it's just like mind-blowing. I mean, and if it, they get to like, you know, redo that entire, you know, sequence... Mm -hmm again you know on a vr thing i mean it's so much more easier or so yeah. much easier to get someone to yeah do i think that. that's the next the next evolution so yeah. analysis has gone through periods of evolution and i definitely think ai and vr are the next uh, the next steps and obviously that's something in american sports that's that's being utilized already so uh, i definitely see that being the, the next big step well, I, I want to talk about actually the evolution. We'll, we'll start at, uh, you know, how did you get into this industry? I know you have a slightly uh, different kind of career journey than uh, than most, mm -hmm. uh, you know, video tactical analysis. Yeah, I, I, a lot of it was, was probably luck and just timing. Um, so I was going to university to study a, a sports science degree. Um, and at the same time, I was working um, on match days for Birmingham City. And um, a coach uh, joined the club who had used analysis at his previous club, but obviously it was massively in its infancy at the time. You know, like not a lot of clubs had it. And I think Prozone and Amisco were really the only two systems that you could you could utilise at the time. So, um, And the sports scientist, Dan Harris at Birmingham, who was a fantastic guy and I, I owe a massive gratitude to. He, um, he was having to do a dual role at the time. Uh, so I was working part-time, uh, just filming games for him, um, then started filming training for him. And then Dan Harris said, uh, would you like to do uh, analysis? You know, and obviously, like, I'd not really looked into it that much, and but but I'd supported the football club all my life. So it was like, yeah, like, I'll do it, you know. So, and it was a full-time role on very, very little money, but it didn't matter because obviously it's a massive opportunity. So um, I went and spent a load of time with Prozone, because uh, the club decided that they were going to sign a, a big deal with Prozone. So I went up to Leeds and 
did a lot of stuff with Paul Bonus and Jordan Gar, but again, two guys that have been massive in, in terms of my development. Um, so yeah, spent a long, long time up in Leeds, training on the system and getting used to the system. Uh, but at the time, it was the only thing that was out there. So, um, and it was like a three, four day turnaround. So you play the game on a Saturday, you'd receive a, um, uh, a CD in the post on like the Tuesday or the Wednesday, uh, which now just seems like ridiculous because managers want it within like 10 minutes of the game finishing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so that was really my, my big opportunity and, um, and I took it. Uh, again, I was working, you know, like for very little money, um, but it was an unbelievable opportunity. Uh, but at the time, it was re- really only this coach that that was interested in it. So the manager at the time had no interest in it well, whatsoever. Who's the manager at the time? Um, it was Steve Bruce. Uh, so, Steve Bruce, so, yeah. all right. But Steve's obviously developed into into somebody that that um, embraces analysis massively. Yeah. Where, but at the time, I think he might not have even known I was in the building. But honestly, <laughs> I was sat in the back of a of like a storeroom uh, with a computer, uh, with a VHS player. Um, a small TV so he, I could honestly say he might not have even known I was there because the only integration I would have had was with Dan Harris the sports scientist and uh, he was and, one and, of the first uh, people on this podcast by the way okay. before it was even called This Football Life so yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. no Dan like I say Dan's been fantastic for me and somebody yeah. I respect massively so um, great guy but yeah Dan was I never worked the away games at the time so Dan was doing all the games so it was really strange like concept to get into um, and then my second season with uh, Steve Bruce, Eric Black came in and Eric Black uh, was a massive advocate of analysis and uh, personally I got on really well with Eric and um, he got me travelling with the team and, and a lot more integrated with, with how, it was, how it was being used and then the following season uh, Steve left to go to Wigan uh, and Alex McLeish came in and that's really when my career as an analyst like started to, to go places because... Um, I ended up having a really good relationship with with Alex and his staff. Uh, Roy Aitken came in and Andy Watson, and they were brilliant. And um, I think it was one of them. It was quite a. Uh, it was massively a new thing for them, um, but they embraced it rather than being threatened by it. They thought, no, you know, look, we're gonna we're gonna look into it and see how it's used. And again, the the players at the time they were quite um, quite guarded about whether they liked it or not. And but I was really lucky that personally I had a really good relationship with the players and. Um, and just by having a personal relationship with them, I, I almost like drip fed them little bits of analysis and like, do you want to have a look at this and do you want to have a look at that and just pique their interest. Um, and then when the club signed Lee Carsley, Lee Carsley had come from Everton where they had already got a really good and established analysis set up. Um, and Lee really helped me to um, to, to become like a, a small influence on, on the team and the manager and, and the players. So really, again, it was... It was Lee that that helped me get that that footing. So somebody that I still talk to on a daily basis, and and he's a really close friend of mine now. So. He gave you some of the like the buy-in or the cachet with yeah, the, so, the players. Yeah. So so Lee came in and obviously um, was like a really big signing for the club. Uh, played his whole career like in the Premier League, and like mm. so when the players in the dressing room saw that Lee had such a massive buy-in to to analysis. They kind of followed him, um, so like one by one, they'd want to get a bit more information and whatnot. So, so yeah, and then it just snowballed into like everybody um, accepted it. Um, even the ones that that didn't quite like it would still want information. And again, it all comes down to 
um, to how you conduct yourself as as a person as well. I think that human element is is massive to it, you know. Um, but at the same time, the players understanding that you're a member of the the staff and you're not, you know, that they're not not their friend, but. At the end of the day, you're having to make decisions or have an opinion that's going to potentially affect whether they're playing or they're not playing. So um, that's really important, and especially today, like for the younger analysts that are looking at building a career, like there has to be that that dividing. I'm your friend, but also I'm a professional at what I do. Um, and again, that was something that Lee opened my eyes to, probably. Um, yeah. So we're talking about like 2006, 2007 yeah, yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, Just want to give some context for the yeah, audience. Yeah, it's a long time. Um, yeah, so Prozone and Amisco were like the only two things that you'd, that you'd yeah. use. So that was really like the first, that's the first evolution yeah. of, of analysis. And so you get, you get the CD in the mail on the Tuesday mm-hmm. and like what, you put it in your computer or you get the VHS and you put it in, in the, the player and, and then what happens? Uh, the process was unbelievable. So we'd, we'd obviously play the game. And then I'd have to get a VHS or a DVD, and then they would send a courier down from Leeds to to get either the DVD or the VHS. They'd take it back up to Leeds. The game would then get sent somewhere to be uh, to be uh, analysed, and then you'd receive it back in the post on the Tuesday or Wednesday, like I said. Then yeah, so it was like a CD-ROM basically. You'd put it into your computer, and you'd have to uh, you could drag out some reports from it. Uh, you'd have like report templates that you could get out of it. Um, you can obviously get all the players' clips and whatnot, but um, most of the time it had been coded incorrectly, so you'd end up sending like a list of things back. Because sometimes you'd be sat down with a player showing them their clips and like, I don't know, like a fifth of the clips that you're showing them are like somebody else uh, because the people obviously coding the game uh, and because the quality of the footage at the time would have been horrendous. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was difficult, but... Um, so it was a big turnaround time and at the same time you'd request from then the opposition games so so literally like monday was almost wasted and then tuesday when you got it you'd like work throughout the whole night so that wednesday you could feedback po- um post-match and then again like whole day wednesday you're working on opposition so then on a on a friday you could have a pre-match meeting with the players um but yeah the whole process was like horrendously time consuming and again the whole getting VHSs and putting them onto DVDs and then the players wanting their clips so you'd have to burn a load of DVDs for the players to have their clips and like nowadays when you how easy it is with with all the online stuff it's and with sports code and whatnot it's it seems absolutely crazy how we did it back then or yeah. how you e- how we even did it back then it just seems just I mean seems it's crazy. it's like all of society it's like you know you can't you can't believe there was another way <laughs> of doing it um, before so so when did it all change like was you know was there um, a new piece of technology or um, you know some you know just I'm trying to track the evolution of yeah. of the role so I think when when I very first started it was I was very much a video analyst um, and then there was a massive evolution, in my opinion, when Sports Code came out um, and uh, Opta, really. So you could start getting really in depth with the data. And what year is this around? Oh, blimey, now you're talking. Like uh, 2010? You, you're probably looking at, yeah, 2010 like yeah. onwards, really. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we so we started using using that and it's... Uh, Sports code basically is like revolutionised like the whole analysis um, um, like workflow. So turnaround times of games now are massive. Um, instant feedback during games, 
the the actual metrics and the data that you can get out of out of sports code to to have bespoke data specifically for your team and how you play and what your tactics are is massive. Um, so yeah, so really that was a massive game changer in my opinion. Sports code coming in because, um, like I say, you would have wasted so many days waiting for stuff in the post and being able to do stuff where sports code coming and it was like right instant feedback. So you literally you're saving two days of a week and then those two days that you've saved you can put into going more in depth with your opposition or your your, your post match analysis. So uh, and then Opta as well providing such accurate data at the time um was was massive so that that for me was was the the second evolution of of the whole analysis and did you feel like um kind of i know personally um you know you you said you know lee carsley kind of gave you that credibility but mm-hmm. you know i mean you weren't the only analyst at the time no no not um, at all and i i would imagine uh, several other analysts maybe didn't get quite the the buy in that you got yeah. um because of lee um did that change when you when you got Sports Code, or um, when did people kind of start to respect analysts more? Well, I, I, I think when it was when it was seen as as just another aspect of uh, of the football world. So when it it's like anything when something first comes out, everyone's a little bit cautious of it, um, not sure how it's going to affect them personally, not sure how it's going to affect the industry. So I think people are very cautious. So it, it might sound really simplistic, but I just think time. I think time and accepting that this now is a massive, massive part of, of professional football and professional sport. Um, so I think really when when people started realising that everybody or every club had an analyst in some aspect, I think that's when people started to realise. And we'd sign players from clubs that had had an analyst. And again, like it makes me feel really old that the the uh, players coming through the academy uh, when I first started um, now the players coming through the academy would have had analysis as part of their education um, so again it, it was just a, a time thing you know and um, making sure that the players had been it had been used as again as a positive a positive tool but yeah I think I think everyone probably had a different buy-in from from the players and that would have come down from how the coaches were, were utilizing mm. it um, I think if the analysts had their choice, it would have been um, very much a a way of feeding back positively to the players, and and you know because that's when you get the the quicker buy-in. Was there a moment? Um, maybe it, it wasn't with you per se, but maybe you heard from one of your friends or something when you knew like, okay, no, this is like like everyone gets this. Mm-hmm. Like you know, maybe you know some you had a friend at some club that like couldn't care less about it or even maybe in your own personal history and you're and like there was like a kind of like a you know magic moment where you're like oh no this is like this is cool this is you know the future yeah um, i think um i think again when it's it's when the, the different software comes out you know so um i think that was when when sports code like came yeah. out it was just like uh like wow this is getting serious now this is going to be like this is going to be huge in in terms of of where it's going to go um, and I think obviously looking at sports science, which probably was the first uh, thing that came into football um, and just seeing how, how that had developed and analysis was going like a very similar way. So you could almost predict where the analysis world was going to go from where the sports science world had, had come from. Interesting. Um, 
you know, and and because every club before analysis came in would have had a sports scientist and the sports scientist would have gone through exactly what we went through when we first started. So again, players being really cautious about it's going to catch us out. It's going to, it's going to say, I can't do this and I can't do that. Um, so yeah, so we could have really predicted like the, the pattern from how people um, accepted sports science. Yeah. Well now it's the, the case with like data science, you yeah, know, exactly, data yeah. analysts and yeah. <laughs> but know. I think, I think what's hard is even now, so like all those years since I first started, um, analysis still seems to be like just a job that they're going to give to like to, to anybody. Um, I still think it's massively undervalued in terms of what what people in the industry get paid. Um, and I think because well, can you it, just uh, for the people listening, how much do analysts get paid? Uh, it, it honestly depends in terms of like what club you're at, what level you're at. And you'd be really surprised that there'll be jobs in the championship that are better paid than clubs in the premiership. Um, uh, and obviously relationships that you have with, with managers, like do you go with a manager? Do you stay at the club? And um, I think it's it's completely different across the board, but like people will advertise for even like an intern. Um, and it's almost like I want them for free but they need to have this qualification, they need to have this experience, and it's completely undervaluing um, the role of the analyst, you know, and until people start saying like, no, like this is the bracket of what you should get paid for, what qualifications you have, what experience you have, um, I think, you know, like they're not gonna, we're not gonna get taken seriously in the industry, and sports science is exactly the same, it's still exactly the same, you'll get people that are paid unbelievable sums of money to like head a department, but actually the, the, the staff that, have the feedback with the players and the integration with the players probably aren't earning anywhere near what, what you'd think. Um, and again, it's not like being greedy or anything like that. It's literally when I see people advertise like roles for, for free, but we're going to give you a year's experience, but you have to have paid all this money to do your masters at whatever. Mm. Like it's just really like, I mean, demo- we've all seen those jobs like yeah. online that it's like, Oh, it's like 24,000 or like, you know, yeah. like, and you're like, what? <laughs> but it's, it, it's even like, um, like we'll pay for you to do this and we'll pay for you to do that. But it, like when you work out the yeah. hours that they're going to be doing. And again, like if people are, if people are seriously looking at analysis and saying, this is a, a really integral and important part of, of the football, then it has to be taken seriously from a, from what they're willing to, to pay people. You know? Yeah, and invest. Um, you yeah. know, I, I do want to just uh, go one, one more further on that. I, you know, I was reading this book. Um, well, I, I've read this book um, uh, called Football Hackers, mm-hmm. um, recent with Christoph Biermann, uh, who was a guest on the show. And uh, in the book, uh, he interviewed Ted uh, Knutson, yeah. uh, who's the owner of StatsBomb, yeah, which is one of the you know leading uh, data companies. Yeah, do some great stuff. And, you know, he was like, he, he posited that at some point in the future, the analysts are going to be the most sat, sought after people mm-hmm. in, in the game. Um, I hope it, I think it was Ted Knutson that said that. Um, and that like kind of, they're going to be almost as sought after as coaches mm-hmm. and, and managers, yeah. um, which is, you know, quite a, you well, it's know, like money ball. statement. It's like yeah. Moneyball, isn't it? You know, like, I think again, like, I think probably Moneyball, just because it, it was a, a huge success in terms of the book and then the mm. film coming out, and people again started thinking, well, are these people involved in, in football as well? Um, but yeah, I think, uh, where do I see? I, 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 personally, again, because I'm talking from a, from probably a selfish point of view, I do think that they're, like, they're a massive, massive part of the game now. And, and what you do see are the, the industry leaders, even outside of football, are getting bought into football, you know, so... Um, 
so big elite clubs and elite uh, associations are bringing in uh, people from like cricket and people from rugby um, even from like the American sports as well because mm. of how analytical it is and um, yeah I do think they're going to be like, massively sought after but again at the same time I think personally the evolution of the analyst is going to be um, what is their their core um, strength so are they a data analyst uh, are they a video analyst um, are they a, a telestration analyst so I think it will become like bespoke analysts for, for each each different metric so uh, that's where I see it going um, again people might disagree but I do think that that the way that even like the FA are, are recruiting people from outside of football to, to bring different mindsets and yeah. it's something that we looked into when we was at Derby we were we were visiting rugby unions rugby league mm. teams uh, basketball uh, we were talking to about the NFL as yeah. well because obviously the infrastructure even at the universities the colleges and the, the, the pro teams have got is unbelievable uh, so it's Again, I, I do think that people will start um, headhunting from yeah. even from outside of football. And, and you know, just in case you think that we're crazy having this conversation, um, one of the best coaches in the NBA started as a video analyst, mm-hmm. a video coordinator. Um, so it, this is not as as preposterous as we're talking about. No, and no, he's no, not no, the no. only one as well. Well, it's, it's it's like it's like Mar- Mourinho has got a massive background in video analysis and VS yeah. Boas had a massive background in, in video analysis. So. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Tuchel and, yeah. uh, you know, Unai Emery yeah, takes exactly. it super seriously, yeah. even yeah. like Sean Dyche and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, you, you know, I know you, you mentioned to me before uh, we came, uh, started recording that, you know, a lot of people that are going into kind of the talent ID and, and, and scouting yeah. um, and you have... Uh, a lot of experience, um, you know, kind of interacting with them. So, can you just kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think I think what people might not realise is like how much football an analyst would watch, even even a week. Um, and obviously, within the the competitions that they work within, so Premier League, Championship League, One League Two, um, the actual analysts' uh, knowledge of even individual players uh, is absolutely massive. You know, like they're what we're watching um, like fifteen games a week. Uh, maybe so, so. So each person watches like fifteen games a yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, but like that comes down to you sit down with the coaches as well and, and watch stuff. You know, it becomes an obsession. Um, mm. And again, I've said in the past, if you if you don't love it, it's a really difficult um, profession to, to work within. You know, because you do have to make so much sacrifices with your time and your social life. But um, I'll go home um, and I'll wait for my wife to go to bed, and I'll I'll watch like two more games before I go to bed. And, um, I'll have like the manager on the phone and we'll be watching the same game at the same time and so for the whole game we're on the phone talking about like look at this and look at this and we'll both be coding it and we'll come in in the morning and we'll share our timelines and um, so yeah it becomes an obsession so you, you do end up watching so much football and even even when the season's finished um, like we obviously use Y Scouts a massive uh, massive tool uh, in football and in stat as well um, and Scout 7 Pro Portal and, and, uh, and Pro Vision so all these, um, all these, uh, this software that we can get our hands on to watch games, we're like constantly watching football. So, um, and you just never really switch off from it. So, like I say, even in the close season, once the season's done, like I'll be sat at home watching games, or even I'm so sad I'll be on holiday watching. So, so watching today, games. are you going to watch any games? Yeah, today? I'll watch games today. I'll watch games today. Like I'll, even just going to games. So, so last night I went to watch Kidderminster Harriers play against Aston Villa's um, under twenty threes. So again, like it just becomes, 
an obsession, but I think all the uh, all the analysts like, around the world they must be obsessed with what they do because, like I say, it has such a, a detrimental effect on your your social life and your personal life that um, if you don't love it and you're not obsessed by it, it's uh, it's something that you'd find really hard to do as a profession. Yeah, it's it's not your normal nine to five. No, no but that, but like I said, like these analysts, they they know players in the leagues like the bat like. Craig Cope's a really close friend of mine and he's worked in the championship, he's worked in League One, League Two and now he's he's a head of analysis and recruitment at Solihull Moors in the National League and Craig's knowledge of players throughout the whole division is, is unbelievable. Um, but that's because he's watched so many games um, and, and it's, it's the same with all the analysts that I've worked with. I've always said to, to the analysts they should have um, an input into the recruitment process purely because of the amount of games they watch because if you was paying a scout to watch the same amount of games that the analysts are watching anyway it costs you an absolute fortune yeah. whereas you've got these people in the building that are watching all these games have an unbelievable knowledge of the players they look at all the data as well so they know, know who the top performers are in every position for every key metric um, so to not utilize them within the recruitment process is, is crazy in my opinion i mean they're already scouting them for the games yeah exactly they're just you know not for the yeah, buying exactly, of them yeah yeah, yeah. And, I, and again i'm a big advocate of the more people that have an opinion on it like the better because uh, what you'll find is an, an analyst like we we've employed data analysts uh, the last uh, last three clubs that we've been at um and even just saying to them like these are the key metrics that we look for in say a right back um for how we play, how the opposition are going to play against us. So we need them to hit these metrics because the current one's hitting these metrics. The under 23s right back is hitting these metrics. So we don't want to block a pathway. Um, so we want to bring somebody in that's that's achieving higher metrics than what we've currently got in the building. Um, so a data analyst, they might spew up a name that we'd have gone, nah, like not for us. But actually in terms of the data and what the data's telling us, you might be like a really, really good performer for us. So I think you have to involve everybody. And then again, it comes down to heads of recruitment, technical directors, uh, the manager, obviously having the, the final final say on things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I want to get to some, you know, more specific, uh, you know, actual tactical changes in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've watched at this point, you know, hundreds and thousands of games probably this mm-hmm. year. Um, what's something that you've noticed tactically maybe in the last uh, year or so, maybe 12, 18 months, um, you know, evolution in the game? I think obviously the, uh, the possession game has become such a, a, massive, uh, a massive thing. And um, obviously Pep coming into Man City and, and doing what he's done and, and the style of play that he's playing. Uh, but then obviously Klopp at Liverpool as well, doing it a little bit differently. And like, I'm probably people say it's crazy but I'm a bigger fan of the way that Klopp would set up a team than the way that Pep would set up a team and again that's just my personal opinion and it obviously counts for nothing in the wider world um, but obviously the build up phases I think like how teams play out how teams press uh, has become much more tactical um, and obviously with the new rules coming in as well about um, defenders being able to receive the ball off the goalkeeper within the 18 yard box um, I think again tactically that's going to have massive uh, repercussions in the game and how people try and build up um, and again I just think football is going to become a lot more tactically um, influenced rather than having individual players that, that have a big influence on the game um, so yeah so I think personally the way teams build up I think I think for us in the championship because obviously that's probably my, my skill set I've worked so many years in the championship I think when Wolves came came in with Nuno 
um, and they adopted the, the three at the back and the wing backs and how they played it and obviously how Chris Wilder's done it at Sheffield United I personally think that's a that's a massive massive thing there for the championship and we've We've spoke with 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 Nuno and and tried to understand like why he played that way and and again I think I think trying to get centre backs in the game uh, the importance of set plays the importance of crosses in the box defending and attacking them again I think switching play trying to create as much space on the pitch as possible um, were quite big advocates of of counter attacking football as well so transitions whether they're high mid or deep um, again I just think. Tactically, and because it's so uh, it's so scrutinised by the media as well now, you know, like you got some really good pundits on Sky. I think they're opening people's eyes to uh, to the tactical side of the game a lot more. And even you know, like people people that just watch games for the fun of watching games now, I think have a real good understanding of of, of tactics and what teams are trying to do against each other. Yeah, I mean, like Monday Night Football, like you know, the level of detail yeah. they'll get on that is you know actually like quite impressive no, really um, for like such a mainstream audience because yeah. um, you, you you know that you'd think they would maybe dumb it down a little bit, but they, they you know they go pretty deep. No, on it's the, good. Yeah, and, the, and again, like that's 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 in the championship as well. You know, that the, the championship is becoming. Again, in my personal opinion, one of the biggest leagues in, in in Europe. You know, even when you look at the the financial side of it, it's it's a massive, massive league now, and the quality of players and and, the, and managers within the championship is is brilliant, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I, I, there is one thing about um, one specific tactical thing I want to discuss, um, which is kind of the the low block, mm-hmm. and that is because I mean. You know, we have all this build-up play, and it almost invariably it gets to this like half field. I want to say half field. It's you know really like this. Yeah, one the defensive third, 30, the defensive third, yeah, thirty you know <laughs> meter area that all of the players more or less are in, and yeah. all the action is, and every team struggles, understandably so. I mean, yeah. there's limited space, and yeah. these guys are big and fast. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you approached trying to solve the low block? Yeah, so we've uh, we've always worked on um, on attacking rotations, and I think patience is massive, and I think that's that's hard as well from a supporter's point of view. Because like you say, almost in every game you come up against a, a deep block, um, and you have to try and recycle possession, and it becomes quite sideways and backwards, and a bit of a, like a game of chess or cat and mouse. Uh, so I think as a spectator, it, it can become quite um, quite frustrating. Um, but from a tactical point of view, we've always tried to look at. Um, how we can drag players out of positions and create space ourselves and again like you said it's really difficult because the spaces that you're working within and if you was to do it in a training session in a real condensed space um, even like a, like an 8v8 it's really difficult to break either team down so we always looked at, um, at rotation so again a little bit like what Man City do now where the fullbacks come inside the pitch centre midfielder might go wide uh, switching the play quickly so we can try and drag players out of positions or create space um, but really, we've always looked at just just trying to penetrate lines and breaking lines. Um, so we've always worked on attacking rotations and just trying to be as unpredictable as possible in the final third. You know, so I think it was Mourinho that said, um, "I'll get you to the final third, but what you do once you're in that final third is up to you." Um, but again, I think that's hard because you have to give them some type of patterns of play to do it. And most of the time, in that in that attacking point of view, it's a uh, a player will come up with a with a bit of magic, you know. Like how many times have you seen Sterling in a deep block end up 
popping up somewhere where you don't expect him so we might be playing off the left and he ends up playing off the right and that people are just getting rotations and whatnot so I think that's becoming unpredictable in the attacking third uh, is something that we we try to try to work on but again until you come up against how different teams do that different deep block it's really difficult to break down especially when the pressure from the crowd as well is that they want to see an instant breakthrough um, and the players feel that as well the players feel that 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 little bit of tension and uh, so they might try and force a pass um, which will break down the move so yeah it's really difficult it's really difficult how much spe- time do you spend on the on breaking down the low block versus some of the other phases in the game? Again, I think it de- it purely depends what your style of play is. Um, and I, I, again, I think depending what club you're at as well and what players you've got access to, uh, because some teams won't focus too much on how they play out because they don't have the personnel to to do that. You know, like not everybody's got the, the type of players that, that Man City have got or. Or, or whatnot. So it, again, it depends purely where you are and and how often you're coming up against the deep block. Because uh, some teams will purely be the deep block team that then counter attacks, uh, and some teams will be a lot more expansive because they want to create a lot more space on the pitch. So it purely depends where you are, uh, what your footballing philosophy is. But we'd spend a lot of time, a lot of time on it, short, tight spaces. Like you see, everyone, everyone does that now in training. Everyone's doing similar things in training, like first touch passes. Uh, real quick distributions even from the back um, the switches of play being really quick a high tempo passing style um, so yeah everyone's doing it in training everyone's doing a similar thing but again it it all comes down to being in the moment and in the game somebody making that decision that correct decision to try and break a line or or try and switch play or that final pass and I think in the championship what you'll find is that that final pass compared to the, the Premier League um, isn't quite there yet, you know, and things will break down a lot quicker in the championship than they would do in the in the Premier League. But we'd we all, we had attacking coach, unit coach, a midfield unit coach, a defensive unit coach. So the midfield and the attacking unit coach would spend a lot of their time with the strikers, with the midfielders, purely focusing on how you break down a deep block. And for the strikers, it would be normally against a deep block, it has to be a, a first time finish or a one touch finish. Um, in a real tight area so they'd focus on how they're finishing off chances where them opportunities are going to come from they're probably going to be a cutback or or um, or a pass down the side of a centre-back so what their body shape is what their movement needs to be their timing so that they're not offside or whatnot and the midfielders again would work on breaking those lines the timing of when they need to break those lines so yeah a lot of time is spent on on the deep block and again you can do all your, your pre-match analysis on your opposition uh, as early in the week as possible and you know that you're going to come up against it. So you'll tailor your training uh, accordingly to what you think you're going to come up against. It's it's interesting because I've, I've thought for a little while now that I feel like sometimes almost people in football could almost just like take a, a step away and like not even look at it as football sometimes with the low block and like get super creative. I Mm -hmm. feel like most of the solutions are more or less not the same, but like, you know, just different wrinkles on each other. But I feel like there hasn't been like a lot of like Uber creative ideas on how to do it. And by the way, I'm not proposing like I have one because obviously this is really difficult. I'm not suggesting it's not, but it almost feels like there is, 
there is another way that we haven't really thought of yet. And yeah, like that creativity is. wise that like, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like someone outside the game yes. that was just like purely looking at it as like a, even looking at the data, even looking at the data, you could probably find a, a, a different solution just by looking at the data. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's again, something that like probably Ted at StatsBomb like could probably tell you a, a different way. I think you'll find now that, that teams teams are employing like specific coaches for, yeah. for throw-ins, for free kicks, for corners, um, and again, you might you might end up getting somebody that just kind of thinks of something really obscure to to break down a a, a deep block that no one's really really thought of yet. Yeah, you know, Sheffield United were probably the best in the championship at at just being so unpredictable for the way that they played because their centre halves that end up in the opposition box. And again, like the midfielders are looking at each other and the, the defenders are looking at each other going, well, who picks up their centre-back when he's in the attacking third? So again, it's just doing something that, that might seem so obscure because sometimes you'll stop it and you'll go, the two wing-backs are almost on the on the touchline. The, the two centre-halves are, are deep in the opposition's half and it just looks it just looks crazy, but maybe that's maybe the craziness is is how you break down a, a deep block and they was unbelievable at it. it was really difficult to stop them doing what they were doing and teams tried and found it really really tough so they found something that that again nobody else has really done since i remember during the world cup last year when you know england famously like was running those set piece plays where it was much like they took it from the nba mm -hmm. where everyone starts in a line yeah, the or train. like yeah <laughs> in the train exactly and then they all like went in random directions yep. and no one knew really how to handle it and i remember thinking at the time i was like there was a way you could just do that in normal play mm -hmm. you know with you know the you know two center backs and like the holding midfielder yep. i guess and have like you know, kind of three guys all in the same spot yeah. and like literally make a different run in a different direction. Well, I think that's and what like Man City do. I think that's confused. what Man, yeah. Man City do really well. So, so in, in the in the pockets or the half spaces, if you want to call it that, the the, the fullbacks end up in there. Yeah. So again, as a defensive team, it's really difficult to go right. So so where's the wide players? Where's the where's the attacking midfield mm. players? Um, because it it becomes it looks so random. Yeah, like um, the overloads. Yeah, is overloads. Like... Yeah, getting overloads in wide areas and in, in, in attacking areas. And again, that's like we said, that's where Sterling scores the majority of his goals. Yeah. Where he turns up somewhere that no one's expecting him to do so, or there's an overload created somewhere that drags a defender out, which creates a space for him to exploit. So, um, yeah, again, like it's it's a it's a, it's becoming a massive part of the game now, and and I. I I do think from the fans' point of view that frustration gets felt by the players and it does force them to make um, decisions they probably wouldn't make if there was a bit more patience. But look, they're, they're paying, to, yeah. paying to watch the game. They want to see entertainment. So, yeah, I mean, so we're I can all understand human, it. right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, totally understandable. Um, the, one, the one last thing I want to uh, ask you before uh, we, we finish is, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit about... Um, you know, drawing inspiration from other sports. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious, is there um, something in the last, you know, year or 18 months or so that you've noticed from another sport that you've been able to kind of apply to, to football? Um, you know, it could be the NBA, NFL or rugby, cricket, yeah. as you said. Yeah, um, so because this is something of my own little personal interest. I always am, because I'm such a huge sports fan in general that like, I'm always like trying to connect the dots between yeah. the different sports, so. Yeah, so we've we've been quite lucky that we've had access to to other elite teams uh, and sports. So when we was at Derby, we uh, 
I think the manager spoke to Sir Dave Brailsford from Team Sky um, about how they do everything really, sports science analysis and whatnot. And we we spoke to people in a, from Super League and uh, from from uh, from the rugby side of things. And um, Stuart Keys, a close friend of mine, who's the analyst at Warwickshire a Cricket Club. Um, so just trying to get a how everybody does it differently. And that's why we bought the app into Derby. So the app hadn't been used at a professional football club before or hadn't been developed by a professional football club. That was purely for the for the players to use. Uh, and that came from rugby. Um, so so we, we, we took that from there. Um, and again, it's just, it's hard because um, they've all obviously got their different aspects. So, so we look at, if you look at cricket, it's quite stop-start or it's quite repetitive, whereas football is probably a lot more unpredictable. Um, but no, I think I think it's really important to try and and we've been quite quite lucky really since since we've been out of football to go and visit places and, and talk to people in different sports and see how they do things and try and um, pick bits out of their philosophy that we might want to take uh, somewhere else and even within football you know speaking to different managers and different coaches and different analysts and for me like. Um, going and speaking to to analysts and, and looking at how they're doing things and where they see the future of analysis going has been has been like unbelievable for me and something that I will 100% take into take into the into the next club but I think what's hard especially with analysis is because it's so full on once the season started you literally have the close season when you're trying to relax a little bit but like I say you're watching game after game anyway then you have pre-season where there's a pre-season schedule for you to try and get all your processes in place for when the season starts and it's Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, um, you're not trying to catch up on things. But I think that whole learning process is quite difficult when you're in the thick of things. Um, so you can get left behind a little bit and the analysis world is evolving like so quickly. It's unbelievable. So, uh, and we're really lucky that we've got we've got the uh, the potential to, to use different systems. So like I say, like Trackab, Coach Paint with Kyron Hager, um, the way that Huddle is embracing sports code and what they're doing with sports code is like, just mind-blowing um but it's actually trying to learn these new processes during a season when it's it's pressure you're like you know you're three three or four losses away from from being in trouble so um being in the thick of things and trying to develop is quite difficult so i think that's why i've been quite lucky being out of it that i've been able to to try and develop myself and i've again i've I've been really lucky to meet people that have helped me do that and allow me to do that uh, so again, like they'll know who they are, and massively thankful to them. But yeah, I think I think everybody needs to embrace it a little bit. And we was looking at players as well in terms of other sports. So at Derby, we'd get um, it becomes quite monotonous during the season. Players are doing like similar sessions all the time. They'll be doing similar cool down sessions or after every game, you know. So to try and get out of the monotonous nature of the championship and football, um, we were bringing in. Um, American football coaches to do an American football session with them as something different. So they're still getting the physical capacity in, but it's stimulating them in a different way. And we take them to a, a professional basketball team and they'll be doing basketball. And um, I seen Preston recently with Tom Little, who's a brilliant sports scientist. Um, they were doing hurling in, in Ireland. And again, like players just love doing different different things, different stimulations. At Derby, we, would, we took them to a UFC gym to work on and how to use their body in tight areas, to, trying to adopt it in a, in a set play um, scenario. So I think you can learn everything. And again, as a stimulant for the players, it's massive because of how monotonous football can be. 
Well, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for joining the show. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time today. No, I appreciate you having me. And obviously what you're doing for, for the sport and football as a profession is fantastic. So thank you on behalf of everybody and all your listeners. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you would like to hear more episodes or see show notes of this episode, please check out my website, www.thisfootballlife.com. And please, if you enjoy the show, share it with a friend, a family member, or a colleague. Hell, tell a stranger if you feel so inclined. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy your day.